Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Today is the day you have made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Today is the day you have made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And I won't worry about tomorrow. I'm trusting in what you say. Today is the day. Today is the day. Good morning. Today is the day the Lord has made. We are rejoicing. We are glad in it. Now, that does not mean that everything about today we will be glad for. I'm just saying. Yeah, we're going to be glad in it. We are going to rejoice in it. We are going to recognize that uh, God is God. And uh, even in the midst of moments and circumstances that seem traumatic, chaotic, out of control, we are going to recognize Uh, that God is, and God is going to be faithful to be himself. I mean, you can count on that, right? You can count on God's faithfulness uh, for God to be himself, and you need to not only be mindful of, but just sort of just let your life song sing the truth and glory and goodness and beauty of who God is. So I was reminded uh, this morning that for some people, actually, because I got a prayer request from a friend um, asking for prayer as she was, it's interesting because she was convicted by the conversations we've had here about um, the Bible before the phone, like, right, your Bible first. And yet she texted me on my phone to uh, ask me to pray for her in relationship to feeling like reading the Bible, getting into the Word of God was a chore. Like it was, you know, it had to be something that I, that she was feeling like she has to do, like I, I have to. And I texted back and I'm like, well, yeah, it is a have to. Like you you have to because without it, like we're we're dry, we're empty. We're, we don't have anything to offer of ourselves today. Uh, and so we need God to fill us up afresh every morning. Uh, you know, his mercies are new every morning and we need them new every morning. And so... Um, it, I guess I'll just ask, do you feel like reading the Bible is a chore or do you just acknowledge that it's just this delight? Like, I just I can't wait. I can't wait to meet the Lord, my God, in the context of his word and uh, better, better see him and better hear him and better recognize him. And yes, be filled with the very word of God in order that as I enter into what will be a pressure filled day. No matter what you're entering into, it's going to be a pressure-filled day because, like, the world is like a pressure cooker, right? And um, the steam is rising, and it is hot. And under pressure, what comes out of us is our witness. So under pressure, what comes out of us is our witness. And we are either being witnesses who are faithful to the character of God and uh, the gospel, the redemptive cosmological reality of what God is doing in the context of human history, or we are bearing false witness against him. This is it. So when the pressure rises, what comes out of us is our witness. Um, We are witnesses. It's just a question of what we're witnessing to and how we are witnessing as people of God, either authentically to who he is and his character and the gospel or inauthentically as a witness contrary to all of those uh, truths. So 
if we're not in the Bible, if uh, if we don't put the first, literally the first thing first, if we don't put the Bible before the phone, if we are in the world without being in the word, then invariably what's in us is going to come out of us when the pressure rises and what comes out of us is not going to be consistent with who God is or his word. So there you go. There's the there's the motivation today to reconsider the delight, the opportunity, the delight, the joy, the privilege that it is to enter into the word of God, to read the scriptures uh, and to then allow your life to be read by them. All right. uh, This is Mornings with Carmen. Next up, Drew Griffin. He and I have, oh my goodness, a bounty of international headlines to cover this morning. So get the globe and just just get ready to just like spin it because that's what we're doing up next with Drew Griffin from Providence Magazine. All right, Drew Griffin from Providence Magazine. Thank you so much for joining us again. Um, and we are gonna we're gonna literally fly through some headlines this morning. Good morning, my friend. Hey, good morning, Carmen. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Um, all right, uh, let's start with um, uh, maybe what was for uh, all of us an unanticipated development out of the G7. Uh, French President Emmanuel Macron trying to play the middleman between Iran and the U.S. Uh, seems to be the goal of getting a new or revised nuclear de- deal. Um, what's going on there? Yeah, so this was a little bit of a, a surprise, at least in the um, international community, as uh, Macron invited the um, uh, Iranian foreign minister to the G7. The G7 remembers this uh, meeting that was just held, uh, hosted there in France between the seven largest economies uh, in the world. The United States was present, uh, as well as France and Germany and the United Kingdom and Japan. And um, uh, Macron invited the Iranian foreign minister there to try and kind of do a back channel um, uh, rehash of the Iran deal that the U.S. withdrew from um, early in the Trump administration. Uh, this is a, a common theme that we see out of uh, the European uh, signatories to the JCPOA, the Iran deal, as it's called. Uh, because they are, I mean, they're still very uh, invested and still uh, very determined to try and salvage some uh, measure of this agreement. Mainly, I think, because of uh, security, because they're uh, within the range of a potential Iranian missiles. I mean, so they they feel like they need to keep an eye on Iran, and and the best way to do that is to engage Iran um, economically and politically and diplomatically. Um, but also economics that they want. They see Iran as a potential market and uh, they see their um, economies as potential markets for Iran. Uh, but the United States has remained uh, kind of strong uh, against this. It is withdrawn from the Iran deal. It, it will not, I think, uh, reenter it unless uh, Iran basically um, complies completely. Uh, they disarm, they denuclearize, and they discontinue from funding groups like Hezbollah and um, uh, other terrorist groups throughout the Middle East. So I think Macron's effort was um, ill-fated uh, from the beginning if his effort was to get the United States to uh, re-engage Iran in a meaningful way. Okay, so President Trump um, at one point uh, offered to sort of be this kind of middleman or the broker of peace in this conflict between India and Pakistan over the region of Kashmir. 
Um, I haven't heard much about that in terms of the, you know, the president pressing in. Uh, can you bring us up to date on that? Yeah, the, President Trump this week, I think, indicated that <clears throat> and released a statement to the White House did that um, the the issue really, they believe, is is between right now India and Kashmir or India, Kashmir and Pakistan, um, which is very helpful to uh, the Indian President Modi, uh, who is, um, I think, attempting to just sell this um, acquisition, basically, of Kashmir to the world as this is just a this is just an in-house intramural fight. Uh, between India and, and and Kashmir, the you know no one really needs to pay any attention. <clears throat> this isn't really uh, you know any, uh, that big of a deal. Um, and despite his earlier statements, yeah, President Trump said, yeah, I'm not going to um, you know get involved. It's this is not our deal. Um, however, I think it's uh, he's disregarding the historic role that the United States has played uh, with India, with India and Pakistan, with India and China. Uh, with India and Kashmir, and the, and the, the historic role that it, the United States has played is one of just kind of um, of a, a broker, a peace broker, a peacemaker, uh, one who can come in and um, help negotiate peace and kind of keep uh, hotter heads from prevailing in an area of, of region of the world where you know the threats are really great because the India India has nuclear weapons. Pakistan has nuclear weapons. China has nuclear weapons. There are you know these these nations are are. Uh, nuclear nations, uh, and so there's always the fear that if if uh, hostilities escalate uh, too far, that we can get to a point where they could become a, a nuclear conflict. So the United States has a, a really great role, and I think there's a really important point here that I kind of want to draw out is that a lot of people criticize the United States for being the world's policeman, and you know, uh, oftentimes even in the Trump administration, the the options that are placed before the American people and with regards to getting involved in the world is it's like, well, we either invade or we do nothing, right? We all, we either declare all out war and send in the troops and the 101st Airborne or we do absolutely nothing. And there's a real middle ground here. And I think there's, there's a lot of power in soft power. The U.S. does not have to invade to assist a situation uh, in the world. And I think that it's uh, potentially a missed opportunity uh, for the United States uh, to play. And if we step away uh, from these negotiating tables, if we step away from these rooms where decisions are made, um, we shouldn't be surprised if the situations escalate. And if oftentimes we have to get involved after the situations have escalated beyond a point where, you know, um, uh, talk is effective anymore. Yeah, I, I feel like part of that is just the 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 lessons um, forgotten about, I think, in the South, what we would historically have called like steel magnolias. In other places, they would call it velvet gloves, right? Like there are, right. um, they, yeah, we have the 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 concept of of soft power, the concept of how do you influence without, uh, yeah, without seeming like a policeman with a baton, right? There's there's right. all of that. Okay, um, we're gonna have to take a break. When we come back, uh, I'm gonna ask Drew about. Uh, Brazil and other things going on in South America. We're going to touch on Venezuela and the migrant crisis there. And then we have got persecution headlines from around the globe. And so we're going to take those in turn as well. Drew Griffin is with me. He is from Providence Magazine. You can check it out at ProvidenceMag.com. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Drew Griffin. He's the managing editor of Providence Magazine. You can find it at ProvidenceMag.com. Lots of great stuff posted there. 
right now uh, at the intersection of American foreign affairs and the Christian faith and the Christian worldview. Um, Let's pivot toward South America here. Brazil rejected aid from G7 nations uh, and then apparently after President Trump made an affirmation of Bolsonaro yesterday, now Bolsonaro is offering to reconsider accepting the money to fight the Amazon, the, the fires in the Amazon. If Macron apologizes, I just this is like, you know, I, what's going on here, Drew? Right. So Bolsonaro is a um, he's a little bit of a live wire. Uh, he's um, <laughs> he's 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 quite he's a real personality. He's he's a real ego. He's um one who is prone to overstatement and a lot of bluster. And uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, has been concerned and as the kind of host of the G7 last week, uh, forming a uh, international coalition to help uh, Brazil fight the forest fires in the Amazon, which are um, at an almost unprecedented level this year, and uh, to send a certain amount of aid. Uh, part of this is uh, political. Part of this is, um, and part of this entire story is is just driven by personalities. Um, Twenty million dollars, honestly, is, is a little bit of a, of a token, uh, and I think that um, Bolsonaro viewed it as somewhat of an insult. I think twenty million dollars is roughly what the United States spends on popcorn in like a day or something. I mean, it's it's not a lot of money uh, in in terms of these levels of um, uh, major catastrophes. Um, and so I think there's there was a little bit of uh, insult there. Plus, uh, Macron, I think, put some strings on the money in terms of uh, how the money would be distributed to fight the fires and how the aid would be distributed. Uh, Bolsonaro took some level of, of kind of um, umbrage, umbrage to that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> One yeah, of my favorite uh, words. I know. And you rarely get to use it. Uh, but I mean, look, Brazil is uh, the largest economy in, in South America. It's got, you know, a, a three trillion dollar uh, GMP. It's it's got the ability uh, to tackle these fires on its own. I think part of um, uh, part of the, the embarrassment that Bolsonaro may be dealing with is that he spent weeks allowing the fires to uh, increase and go unchecked. And so now is facing uh, a, a large amount of criticism, both within his own country and from the international community. Uh, so we were dealing with some fragile egos and a really um, a horrible situation. Um, but that's kind of, I think, where the where the story um, ends at that point. OK, let's uh, while we're still while we're in South America, let's talk about Venezuela. Uh, we're now looking at something like four million refugees. I mean, we're talking about uh, uh people leaving in numbers like like they've left Syria. Um, Give us a sense. Give us a sense of uh, give us an update there. Right. So this has been predicted uh, and we've been following this story um, uh, concerning Venezuela since uh, the real crisis uh, began uh, earlier this year. Uh, We're we're dealing with uh, an unprecedented level of of um, immigration and uh, refugees, yeah, it is entering into a um, when you're dealing with a, a population um, of um, not that many millions to have uh, probably a good. I think we're getting close to the you know 30 percent of your population uh, being uh, you know uh, sent abroad into other other countries. It has a huge economic impact on uh, Venezuela. Um, and it has a, a, a major kind of ancillary impact to the, the nations surrounding Colombia, Ecuador, um, uh, Brazil. Uh, all of these nations are beginning to shoulder the weight, uh, including the United States and uh, Peru and Chile. 
Uh, like it is, it is becoming a, a regional problem, and um, <clears throat> there seems to be very uh, little movement uh, in Venezuela regarding um, uh, Juan Guaido and um, his kind of insurgency to um, uh, institute uh, constitutional norms there in the country. And so um, it doesn't seem like the situation is going to abate anytime soon, um, but it's something I think that the United States, again, uh, could pl probably play a stronger hand in and is not, um, and, and is doing so kind of at the detriment of the region and even, I think, our own policy as we receive um, any number of migrants um, coming up to uh, our nation that we're having to house, and it's causing the, the crisis at the border that we're dealing with uh, right now. Okay, so okay. there are persecution headlines that, you know, I if we had another half an hour, right, uh, there are persecution headlines um, out of Egypt this morning, there are uh, there are headlines related to Christian persecution in or persecution of Christians in Sudan. We talk about the Rohingyas uh, and that ongoing crisis in Myanmar. Um, uh, there, let's do the Yazidis because we've heard the Yazidi story, um, and yet I don't think that people know the ways in which the Israelis have been serving the Yazidi population. So tell us that story as our sort of highlight of the persecuted today. Sure. So this is a fascinating story uh, that was reported in the, the Jewish Journal um, that's um, uh, talking about an uh, Israeli aid organization called Israaid that um, uh, has spent uh, no small amount of money uh, training um, uh, counselors for Yazidi women and uh, trying to actually study um, the effects that the years of uh, persecution and, and genocide and sexual slavery has had on literally thousands upon thousands of um, Yazidi women and children uh, whose villages were burned, who they were taken into captivity, and they were sold into sexual slavery for years, and they were abused. And what they're seeing here is something that they're calling complex PTSD. So you've got post-traumatic stress syndrome, which we're all kind of familiar with, unfortunately, because of so many of our own soldiers coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan that are dealing with PTSD. But this, this complex PTSD is something that they're seeing that uh, occurs when um, uh, these women have been uh, subjected to trauma over years. I mean, this is year upon year upon year of being abused and raped and tortured, um, that it is um, it has a, a, a disproportionate effect. And so Israel is is really stepping up and stepping into the gap. And uh, it's it's the country that looks in and sees these persecuted uh, people in the Middle East. And they, when Israel sees persecution, oftentimes they see themselves because, I mean, is, Israelis and Jews have been persecuted since the beginning of time. And, um, you know, certainly in the 20th century is just this massive, uh, horrific story of um, Jewish persecution uh, through the Holocaust and through the pogroms and, and all of the uh, various persecutions that they faced. And so they're really, um, I think, kind of stepping into the gap and, and offering some assistance, trying to not only just, uh, you know, send money and, and do that kind of thing, but try and study the problem to try and determine to see if there's a way that these women can salvage uh, their lives and salvage their futures um, so that they don't feel like um, uh, they're forever uh, victimized 
by the horrors of ISIS that they faced. So it's it's really an amazing story. Um, you know, props to Israel uh, for for stepping up into this uh, into into the gap, and uh, definitely the area and um, the increasing persecution, which is almost at a record level uh, in the world right now for Christians, especially. Uh, deserve our thoughts and our prayers and our action on the part of the United States and the U.S. government. All right. For more on all of this, you guys can check out ProvidenceMag.com. Some headlines I'm reading today in relationship to Christian persecution. There's one in the Wall Street Journal. Anti-Christian violence is surging in in Egypt, prompting an exodus. We've heard about an exodus from Egypt before. This is a different one. Um, But there's also headlines out of the Sudan and there's headlines in The New York Times related to the Rohingya. So let's be uh, let's be not only praying for, but advocating on behalf of persecuted people around the globe. Drew Griffin, thank you so much for joining us again today. Thank you, Carmen. Take care. You too. We'll be right back. Peter Kapsner is going to join me for a conversation about America's shifting values. So I want to I want to I want you to think about the word value for a minute and how you define that. What's the value of something? What do you place value on? And what does it mean if we begin as a culture and as a nation to begin valuing things less? So we value marriage less. We value children less. We value patriotism less. What what does that mean in terms of the way we're thinking about things now? And what does it mean for the future? We're going to talk about evidence of the changing values in America, and we're also going to probably make an argument for a return of morals over values. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. One of my favorite Bible stories is the prodigal son. Hi, this is Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. You probably know how the story goes. A young man asks his father for his inheritance early. His father agrees. Then, the son basically blows all the money on extravagant and wasteful spending. He ends up eating pig slop for food. He decides to return home. He's broke and he is ashamed. But his father forgives him and actually celebrates his homecoming. Do you ever feel like the prodigal son? You may think you've wasted your talent, or maybe you haven't made wise decisions with money, and you haven't made the best use of your life. The good news is, it's not too late. God gives us grace to begin anew. Start today. You can commit to using your time, talent, and treasure to live a life that reflects your faith. You'll find you're filled with contentment, confidence, and generosity. Dr. Peter Kapsner is back. He and I like to talk about all the ways that we are living life upside down. Uh, and we as Christians see things right side up, but we are definitely living in a world that does not see things the same way we do. And so we try to bring the the lens of Christianity, the Christian worldview, into focus here in our conversations that we like to call Fifty Shades of Truth. So, Peter, 
Welcome back. Thanks, Carmen. Great to be here. It is, uh, I have to say, it's first day of school for me. We are back, and in about an hour, I'll be in that classroom for the first time again, meeting new students. And uh, it's always interesting to sort of see how things have shifted, even over a summer sometimes, and they're thinking they're, they just deal with so much day in and day out. And, and I'll be curious what the, what the day brings with them. I'll be curious to know how your students feel about the fact that um, I'm going to substitute <laughs> teach for you next week. I am so I, I'm my, I'll say this. Fear and trepidation, excitement, all of the above describes how I feel about that situation, Carmen. <laughs> I think, <laughs> did, did you not say that you were going to open up classes saying, so what are all the things that Kapsner teaches that are just incorrect? And, uh, and that yes, should be a that great start yes. to the class. Yes, exactly. I was thinking that that would be a good way for you to then come back. <laughs> Thanks. Yes. I okay. Love it. There you go. So um, you and I observe every single week headlines where it's it's evident that the value system of many of our neighbors is very different than the value system of uh, of Christians. Yeah. Uh, we make those observations when we read the headlines. We make those observations when we talk about all kinds of things. We now have substantive research to actually... Uh, uh, I don't know, prove our point. So we have this uh, Wall Street Journal NBC poll that j- was just released that describes sort of the shifting. I'm going to use the word attitudes and I'm going to use the word values because values is the is the word they use in um, in in the reporting on on this topic. As generations get younger, uh, as we look toward younger generations, there is a a serious shift away from valuing marriage, valuing children, and valuing patriotism. So, um, wow, let's just start there. Yeah, boy, it was a really interesting set of research and data that that came out related to what you just described and summarized. And was thinking about that a bit, uh, Carmen, and, and I don't... I think we have to to think about what is the origin of these attitudes and values that have shifted so substantially in just even a generation or two. And I think to be fair to the millennial generation in which these statistics are, are they're describing their attitudes, they didn't start out at ages four, five, six, seven, eight years old saying, you know what, I really don't like church and I'm not going to value it, or I really don't like value uh, or value our family or or our country, or anything along those lines. There's a, a Latin concept that's called tabula rasa that uh, John Locke, the philosopher, coined at one point, and tabula rasa means blank slate. And while I think you can take some issues with this idea, his general thought was that kids have a bit of a blank slate that they come into this world with, and we write the values on that blank slate with them and for them based on their life experience, based on the environment in which they grow up, based on what they're exposed to. And so the idea that a millennial generation just suddenly stopped valuing family at the level of previous generations or their faith or their country would, I think, miss the mark a bit in the sense that we've got to ask maybe a bigger question. What kind of environments are our children growing up in? And, uh, you know, clearly over the last uh, probably 40 years or so, we've seen a significant sea change in the way families have been constituted and uh, sort of the deconstruction of the traditional nuclear family and into a variety of family settings. And and I can say for sure, Carmen, that my young people often are very concerned about wanting to have a family. They don't even necessarily want to get married or have children. And a lot of the reason why they describe that is because their childhood was terribly painful given their own family experience. And so here's an example of attitudes and values that have been probably inscribed upon them based on their previous life experience. And 
you know, church is not that sacred place that uh, most families go to anymore. Where Wednesday nights now, uh, when, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, Wednesday nights was very much sort of off limits for the sporting world. You would never have baseball practice or some kind of event on a Wednesday night because it was church night. And, and Sunday was often church in the morning, church in the evening. And, and I'm not saying all of that, we need to go back to that. But uh, clearly, families are not attending church. And so how would we expect our young people to value and have a predisposition to want to go to church? And you could just go on and on. But I think as you look at these numbers, what they are is they're revealing what have been some generational decisions we've made as country, as a family. And, and that has now impacted the next generation. So as you say all of that and you're, you're pointing to Wednesday night, I'm thinking, wow, Sunday morning isn't even any longer um, – sacrosanct in terms of the scheduling of sporting events. I mean, I think about all of the families across America who now place a higher value. I'm going to use that word. I'm going to use it intentionally. Place a higher value on their kid being involved in some kind of traveling sport team that takes them out of town every weekend. Um, They place a higher value on that than they place on their child being um, engaged in the, the warp and woof of the life of a local congregation that we would call the church. And so part of this is what context are we choosing to raise our children in? And then why are we surprised having raised them outside of the context of the church? Why are we surprised that they then reject it? Like there's yep. I mean, some of this when we look at emerging generations and we're like, oh, you know, they don't they don't love the church like we do. And, and it was just, you have to look in the mirror and you have to say, well, you haven't led them to love the church. You have not you've not led them into it. You have led them in many cases out of it by the parental decisions that you have made, placing a higher value on the things that the world values instead of placing a value on the things where we would be spending time in the word, in fellowship with other Christians, you know, cultivating those things. And again, neither one of us is trying to impugn, right. you know, let's say people who are engaged in traveling sports. That's not right. what this is about. This is about recognizing that values um have shifted. Can we talk about the word and the concept of values versus the historic understanding of morals and morality? Because this was not a a survey about morals. It was a survey about values. And there's a reason for that change in language. So when we come back from the break, can we dig around in that for a minute? Yeah, I'd love to. That'd be great, Carmen. And then I would love to um, ask for your reflections on how what we witnessed a couple of nights ago at the Video Music Awards is just evidence of the shifting values that we're seeing in America. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Peter Kapsner is in the house. That's a perfect song. I don't know where Paul Poro found that. That is a perfect song. Stop the world. That was so spot on. That's so perfect. Okay, Peter Kapsner is with me this morning. We are talking about shifting American values. And we're also, we're talking about where we see that in evidence. But we're going to start with a conversation about values versus morals. We used to talk about morals and morality. I don't hear those conversations anymore, Peter. I now hear conversations about values and whether or not we have shared values and what shared values we're going to try to 
you know, lift up. But I don't hear conversations about morality. Why is that? Yeah, it's a fair question. I think uh, there, there's so much of this. And you and I hit on this a little bit last week. I mean, a, a value is uh, what you perceive to be important. It is what you believe is true and best about doing your life in this world. And so what you value is is what you see is how it's going to drive your decisions. And uh, in many ways, it's going to drive your morals. And so the primary value that we referenced last week in our country is uh, that people should be allowed the personal freedom to be whatever they want to be. And when you have that kind of value system, when that's your starting point, then you are going to end up parenting from that place and saying, hey, you know, we as parents, uh, we just are going to sort of let our kids emerge and discover who they are in their own sense of identity and their own sense of what they care about. Um, We maybe in the church will encourage people to say, hey, find your calling, find your passion, find your giftedness. And so we have this value of individualism, this value of being whatever you want to be, and then your moral get derived from that or what you perceive a a moral is what you perceive to be right or wrong and your morals then come from that place and so to your point before the break what we observed in uh, this award uh, that taylor swift the dance all of that that their perception of what was right and the morality of their sexuality was very much being driven by the value that hey people should be and can be whatever they want to be and so that's sort of how those two things work together what you value then gives rise to what you uh, feel is moral or right and good And not that I am suggesting that anybody, anybody sear their retinas by actually (laughs) watching the videos of the VMA Awards because it will uh, once you've seen it, you can't trust me, you can't unsee it. There's no unseeing what they did. Um, But what was so in evidence to me was the absolute redefinition of love. Yep. The. Wow. I mean, there is just open mockery of God in the songs. There is the absolute um, uh, perversion of sexuality and the celebration of perverted sexuality and relationships. There is this like uh, squinting, searing condemnation of anybody that doesn't agree with them and won't advocate uh, with them on behalf of their very uh, aggressive LGBTQ agenda. It, it was, uh, yeah, it is pretty stunning and astonishing. And what what is lifted up as as beautiful and good and true in just the VMA Awards a couple of nights ago, what is lifted up as good and beautiful and true, what was rewarded, what was given awards, the people who were celebrated could not have been further from the gospel. It could not. It, it, it's impossible to imagine it could have been further from the gospel. And and so you know for the for the poll that the wall street journal and uh and nbc did you know on american values and the shift in american values over over time and generations um to you know sort of be released simultaneously on the same day that yeah. the vma awards i'm like yeah. well there's the evidence <laughs> there's so the true. evidence if this is what emerging generations think is good beautiful and true worth singing about and and people who are singing worth celebrating like if this is what they value um, I am living in a completely different value system, and I am living by a completely different set of standards. And when you said uh, just a minute ago that um, it's about what your primary value is, so what do you primarily value? And that's what drives your morals. Yep. If the primary value in the culture is, um, you know, freedom to be whatever you want to be, um, my primary value, if I had to just describe my primary value, my primary value is that God is. Right. 
I, and as that is in, in what you just articulated, Carmen, I think we can't speak about enough because what we witness in the VMA Awards really is the logical extension. It is the logical trajectory of a starting point that is you are free to be whatever you want to be. And you keep playing that out and playing that out and playing it out. It's no wonder we end up in that place. There, There is... Uh, in in the biblical text, they talk about the fruit that is that is born from the decisions and the values that we have, and over time, that fruit um, can become sort of a, a rotten looking fruit that's inconsistent with the kingdom, or it can be consistent with the kingdom. But this is just the logical byproduct of that value system. The value system of the kingdom is that God is, and because God is, and because God loves me. Uh, he he has purchased my life with a price. Uh, there, uh, I am not necessarily free to be whatever I want to be, nor do I even want that, Carmen. I am, in the language of the biblical text, uh, like Paul, a bondservant of the king. I have yielded my life, and I believe that I am not the source moving forward of what is the best and peaceful and most loving life. Like, I can sort all of that out on my own. I bend my knee to a king who does make that claim that he has this kingdom of shalom and peace and love. And so in yielding to God, then in that place, he begins to fill me with these things that I think the commonality, right, between Christianity and what we witnessed in the VMA program is that we all desire a a wholeness of heart. We all desire love. We all desire a peace of the soul. And if you start with be whatever you want to be, you're never going to find it. If you start with God is for me and God has a way of life for me that brings that reality into my life, then you will find it. And and I think that's the message. You you can't do both. And I think we're raising our kids in sort of a one and the other situation right now. And I think that when we talk about having this conversation with what I will describe as uh, at least academic elites, if not elites across the culture yeah. writ large, The immediate pushback is going to be, well, Peter, you and Carmen are simply speaking out of and advocating for the perpetuation of patriarchal subjugation. Like, right. As soon as you say, I bend my knee to another, I bend my knee to a king. I, you know, and and as soon as I point to the text that, hey, friends, I mean, as hope, I I point to this as hope, like hope and joy. The day is coming when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I'm I'm then accused by, you know, those who are. Uh, understood to be the elites of the day, um, you know, I am accused of seeking to perpetuate yeah, patriarchal subjugation. And um, that's not what I'm doing. I'm speaking truth, right? Like, so there is there is such deep confusion in the culture about what is true. Yeah. And, and yeah, go ahead. No, just you're, you're so right. And I think there's, you know, there's a legitimate critique that and you and I have covered headlines for the past several years of how the church has misused and abused power. And so the, there's an understandable reaction and pendulum swing away. But that does not mean that uh, it negates the idea that, you know, we really are meant to bend our knee to a king. But that's because that's what's good for us, not because we have to be sort of subjugated and and, uh, you know, in this in this sort of weird relationship. of power. God does not work in a power over relationship. It's a power under relationship of love that is best for us. But the only way to walk in that kind of kingdom is to yield your life. And that's a different message than this idea, as you've referenced, I run into in university all the time of, uh, yeah, these are just patriarchal systems and they are all disordered to begin with. We just got to set everybody free to do whatever they want to do. Yeah, which um, that has a name and it is anarchy. Absolutely. And nobody and nobody wants to live in that. I mean, in reality, nobody wants to live in anarchy. It, it creates such an incredible anxiety of the soul. Again, you know, we could talk all about the rise of anxiety and the reasons for it. But one of them is that, I mean, it's it's sort of 
Parenting uh, 101, I remember being taught that kids need some sense of boundary around them because it feels safe. It, it gives them a sense mm-hmm. of, okay, I, I am protected now and I can continue to explore life in the midst of boundaries that are good for me. All right, man. I love the conversations that we have. I so appreciate it. Uh, Peter Kapsner is not on social media, so I can't direct you anywhere to follow him. You just have to come and hear him here from time to time. Someday, Carmen. Some, someday <laughs> yeah. I, w- I will yeah. launch the social media just profile. All going to keep hoping for that. All right. Hey, uh, thanks. Uh, thanks, everybody, for being with us in this hour. Bill English is actually already in the house. He and I are going to talk about leadership lessons we learned from the life of David. So stick with us here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, so we have literally uh, spun the globe with Drew Griffin. If you missed those conversations earlier, you can check out the podcast. Although Paul and I will admit to you that we are on a posting freeze right now yeah, at myfaithradio.com. Yeah, server changes and all this other so, technical stuff. So for those of you that have been looking for the podcast from earlier this week, it's not Paul's fault and it's not Carmen's fault. It's nobody's fault. It's the transition in a server. And so we promise that as soon as we can... The uh, the shows from earlier this week and today's show will be posted at MyFaithRadio.com. Uh, in the meantime, you can go listen to, to, to prior shows. They're good, too. Uh, so you can always share one of those with somebody else. You can go to MyFaithRadio.com to do that. You can always text me at uh, 877-933-2484. And for those of you who are waiting on a book, thank you for your patience. They are literally in the mail. They are literally in the mail. I'm getting texts from people who uh, have just gotten their book yesterday. So, um, all right. Uh, Thank you, thank you, thank you. We'll be right back. I got time. Oops. Oh, you're a minute early. I think we're a minute early. minute <laughs> yeah we do sorry my bad that's all right that's all right hey we have a whole other minute i mean how fun is that have you ever gotten an extra minute you know i don't like that day where they take away an hour but that's pretty fun to just get the blessing of an extra minute what are you going to do if you got an extra minute today what would you do 60 seconds to glorify god and just man just get out there with uh with who he is i don't know let's just spend a minute glorifying god Father, we thank you. We praise you. We glorify your name in all the earth. We are humbled um, by the reality of who you are and that you let us in on that through Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit. So, Father, be glorified in and through us today. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.